This talk was given by Roshi Rafe Martin, guiding teacher of the Endless Path Zendo, a lay Buddhist community in Rochester, New York. Join our practice, in person or online, at endlesspathzendo.org. Today is Saturday, February 10th, 2024. I want to first welcome uh, our uh, Dharma brothers, sisters, and cousins from Vermont, Toronto, if there's any from Costa Rica as well. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, now that uh, our, uh, many of our, uh, our friends are off in India, uh, it's great to have you joining in for our practice uh, this morning. So uh, because uh, so many of our uh, close Dharma friends and partners are in India, we're going to continue with a series of Teishos that uh, connect with the Buddha. Uh, last week, we looked at a Jataka found in the traditional introduction to the Pali Jataka a collection, as we know, of 547 such tales. The introduction, titled the Nidankanta, is a separate work in its own right, which in part tells that in world ages past, the Buddha was already a realized Indian rishi with powers, siddhi, powers, S-I-D-D-H-I, able to literally fly through the air. But inspired by an encounter with the Buddha of that past age, Dipankara uh, is the name of that Buddha, he makes a vow to become a Buddha himself. From that time on, instead of working to gain additional powers or personal enlightenment, he commits to maturing endlessly in wisdom and compassion so as to aid all suffering beings. In short, he becomes a Buddhist, making a bodhisattva vow not just to awaken, but to fully actualize all latent powers of the mind for good, fully mature his character, and ultimately be able to free all beings from the sufferings of delusion. Now, hold this tale in your mind because it will have bearing on today's koan, which is case 32, in the gateless barrier, a non-Buddhist or outsider questions the Buddha. And the case goes like this. A non-Buddhist once asked the world honored one, I do not ask for the spoken. I do not ask for the unspoken. The world honored one just sat still. The non-Buddhist said admiringly, the world honored one with his great compassion and mercy, has dispelled the clouds of my delusion and enabled me to enter the way. Making a deep bow of gratitude, he departed. Ananda then asked the Buddha, what did that non-Buddhist realize that he so praised you? The world honored one replied, he is like a fine horse who runs at even the shadow of the whip. Wu Men's Commentary Ananda is the Buddha's disciple, but his realization is less than that of the non-Buddhist. Now tell me, how do they differ, the disciple and the non-Buddhist? Wu Men's Verse Walking along the edge of a sword, running over jagged ice, you need take no steps, 
climb no ladder, just jump from the cliff with hands open. So this koan also appears in the Blue Cliff Record, SK65, where it's accompanied by Schwedo's insightful verse and Wan Wu's trenchant introductory words that would be uh, uh, Engo is Wan Wu, Schwedo is Secho in Japanese. Uh, uh, introductory words, verse, and commentary by Wan Wu. Wan Wu gives us some background on this inquisitive non-Buddhist. Here's what he writes over just about a thousand years ago. The outsider knew the four Vedas and told himself he was omniscient. Everywhere he was, he drew people into discussions. He posed a question, hoping to cut off old Shakya Buddha's tongue. Tongue. The world-honored one did not expend any energy, yet the outsider was immediately awakened. He sighed in admiration and said, the world-honored one's great kindness and great compassion have opened up the clouds of my confusion and allowed me to gain entry. But tell me, Wan Wu says, where are the world-honored one's great kindness and compassion? In short, Wan Wu sees the non-Buddhist as coming with a challenge, a man already loaded for bear. Yet he leaves from his encounter with the Buddha transformed. He's a different man. Aitken Roshi, in his commentary on this case, in his book of Teisho's titled The Gateless Barrier, Teisho's on the gateless barrier, says that the non-Buddhist probably followed one of the many dozen religious paths such as Jain Jainism found in India during the Buddhist time. I myself remember reading that there were said to be some maybe 95 different religious philosophical systems running strong in India at that time. Perhaps the non-Buddhist was a religious philosopher immersed in one of those traditions. He might have felt he already had answers or perhaps he'd reached the end of his intellectual road, heard of this new teacher, the Buddha, who seemed to be something more than a purveyor of philosophical systems, and came to find out if he could take him deeper or free him from a persistent doubt no one has had yet been able to resolve for him. Or maybe Wan Wu was right, and the non-Buddhist or outsider was simply there to challenge. If so, he was then like Daishan, Toksan, 1500 years later, in Tong era China. Daishan, or Toksan, you may remember, was a noted scholar of the Diamond Sutra. Hearing that Zen teachers in the south, where the six patriarch lived, were teaching that enlightenment could be realized in this very lifetime, not countless lives in the future, he set off with a pack of his uh, brilliant commentaries on the sutra up on his back for the purpose of routing out these Zen devils. But meeting a Zen-trained old woman and then the Zen master Lung Tan, he was quickly and dramatically converted. Both the non-Buddhist and Deshan were Asian St. Paul's, on their roads to Damascus. Deshan found himself outplayed 
had a deep experience and went on to become a great Zen teacher himself. But what about the non-Buddhist? What happened after he met the Buddha? What happened when he, not after, but when he met the Buddha? Leonard Cohn uh, has a poem uh, to this point. It's titled, uh, First of All, he says this, think about the koan where nothing happened and yet the non-Buddhist was enlightened. First of all, nothing will happen. And a little later, nothing will happen again. A family might pass by in the night speaking of the children's bedtime. That will be the signal for you to light a cigarette. Then comes a delicate moment when the backwoodsmen gather around the table to discuss your way of life. Dismiss them with a glass of cherry juice. juice. Your way of life has been over for many years. The moonlit mountains surround your heart and the anointed one with his bag and stick can be picked out on a path. He is probably thinking of what you said in the schoolyard a hundred years ago. This is a dangerous moment that can plunge you into silence for a million years. Fortunately, the sound of clarinets from a wandering klezmer ensemble drifts into the kitchen, allow it to distract you from your cheerless meditation. The refrigerator will go into second gear and the cat will climb onto the windowsill. For no reason at all, you will begin to cry then your tears will dry up and you will ache for a companion. I will be that companion. At first, nothing will happen to us. And later on, it will happen to us again. That's Leonard Cohn from the Book of Longing. In response to the non-Buddhist question or challenge, the Buddha didn't say or do a thing. Nothing happened, or did it? Might something unseen, even telepathic, have taken place? Did a form of darshan occur, a transference of spiritual energy, or vibrations from guru to disciple? India, after all, is rather big on that. But no, not that either. Were psychic powers perhaps employed? If so, that would have been beside the point. The Buddha expended no energy, did nothing at all. So what is the point? The Buddha said that realization can only come through our own efforts. Here in this koan, even less is going on than when the Buddha held up, held up a flower in case six of the gateless barrier and Mahakashapa alone broke into a smile. At least there, the Buddha splendidly summed it up, saying, I have the all-pervading eye of the true Dharma, the subtle mind of incomparable nirvana, the true form of formless form and the flawless gate of the supreme teaching. It is not established upon words and phrases and is transmitted outside all teachings. I now entrust this to Mahakashapa. So we have those words and the flower, and the subsequent smile. We have something, but here there's nothing. And yet we hear of a rather stunning turn of events. 
the non-Buddhist, seemingly enlightened, transformed and completely filled with gratitude, humbly takes his leave. The Buddha says nothing until when questioned by Ananda, his cousin and attendant, he gives a rather cryptic response. While something opened for the non-Buddhist, <coughs> the Buddha does not affirm or entrust his dharma to him. He simply says that a good horse reacts to even the shadow of the whip. This is a reference to what appears in fuller form than the Anguttara Nikaya, where the metaphor is revealed to be about impermanence and its motivation toward deeper life. In that talk, the Buddha says that when someone begins to think of the transience of life upon hearing that someone far away is dying, they are like the horse that responds to the shadow of the whip. When someone grasps the reality of impermanence when hearing that someone is dying in their own town, they are like a horse that moves when its hair is touched by the whip. If they respond only when someone in their own family is dying, they're like the horse that feels the whip when its skin is hit. And if they only awake to the reality of impermanence when they themselves are dying, they're like the horse who won't respond until its bones are shaken. But all are horses, and all do get the point eventually. Busan has a haiku, the two plum trees. I love their blooming, one early, one later. The two plum trees, I love their blooming, one early, one later. In his commentary to the case, Woman asks, what is the difference between the non-Buddhist and Ananda? The non-Buddhist understanding may have been deeper than that of the Buddha's own long-time personal disciple. But how do the two fundamentally differ? Here's another question. What's the difference between two rather similar Dharma events? Mahakashapa's smile in response to a flower and the non-Buddhist's grateful words in response to the Buddha saying and doing nothing. In his commentary to the case in the Blue Cliff Record, Wong Wu says, this one public case is understood verbally by quite a few people. Some call it remaining silent. Some call it remaining seated. And some call it silently not answering. But fortunately, none of this has anything to do with it. How could you ever manage to find it by groping around? The matter really isn't in words and phrases, yet it is not apart from words and phrases. If you have the slightest bit of hesitation, then you are a thousand miles, 10,000 miles away. See how after that outsider had intuitively awakened, only then did he realize that it is neither here nor there, neither in affirmation nor in negation. But tell me, what is this? And then he went on to include this poem. 
Master E.Y. of Chen made a verse which said, Vimalakirti did not, Vimalakirti was silent, did not remain that way. Sitting on his seat engaged in deliberation, he made an error. Though the sharp sword is in its scabbard, its chill light is cold. Outsiders and celestial demons all fold their hands helplessly. The sharp sword remains in its scabbard. No weapon is drawn, yet its chill light is cold enough to kill is a comment on the Buddha's non-response to the request, I do not ask for words. I do not ask for the unspoken. I do not ask for form. I do not ask for emptiness. I do not ask for being. I do not ask for non-being. The sharp sword remains in its scabbard. No weapon is drawn yet its chilled light is cold enough to kill. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, when all the bodhisattvas present their personal understanding of the gate of non-duality, Vimalakirti, the wise layman, lying on his sickbed, sickbed is asked to present his view. And he says, nothing. Zen actually calls this silence the thundering silence of Vimalakirti. <clears throat> Here's the scene in the sutra. When the various bodhisattvas had finished one by one giving their explanations, they asked Manjushri, how then does the bodhisattva enter the gate of non-dualism? Manjushri replied, to my way of thinking, all dharmas are without words without explanations, without purport, without cognition, removed from all questions and answers. In this way, one may enter the gate of non-dualism. Then Manjushri said to Vimalakirti, each of us is given an explanation. Now, sir, it's your turn to speak. How does the Bodhisattva enter the gate of non-dualism? At that time, Vimalakirti remained silent and did not speak a word. Manjushri sighed and said, excellent, excellent, not a word, not a syllable. This truly is to enter the gate of non-dualism. That's from the Burton Watson translation of the Vimalakirti Sutra. Now, here's that same scene as a koan in the Blue Cliff Record. It's case 84, Vimalakirti's gate of non-duality. Vimalakirti asked Manjushri, what is the Bodhisattva's Dharma gate of non-duality? Manjushri answered, to my mind, in all dharmas there are no words, no preaching, no demonstration, and no recognition. It is beyond all questions and answers. That is entering the Dharma gate of non-duality. Then Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, each of us has had his say. <coughs> Excuse me. Now tell us, good man, what is the Bodhisattva's entry into the Dharma gate of non-duality? 
Shuedo, that would be Secho in Japanese, commented, commented saying, what did Vimalakirti say? And again, he says, I have seen through him. And that's where the koan ends. What did Vimalakirti say? Indeed, what kind of silence is such non-speaking? Wan Wu says you think as it has anything to do with speech or silence, you've missed it. When Master Feng Shui, or Feng Shui, in case 24 of the gateless barrier in all earnestness was asked by a monk, speech and silence are concerned with equality and differentiation. How can I transcend equality and differentiation? He responded, how fondly I remember Chang Nan in March, the partridge chirps among the scented flowers. How fondly I remember Chang Nan in March, the partridge chirps among the scented flowers. Did he fail to respond properly to the monk's heartfelt request by reciting a few lines from an old poem? By the way, when you think of the verse of the Kesa in the Raksu, wondrous is the robe of liberation, a treasure beyond form and emptiness. Wearing it, I will unfold Buddha's teaching for the benefit of all sentient beings. Beyond form and emptiness, I will unfold the Buddha's teaching the Buddhist teaching, of course, is realization of our own nature. To go on, while well, all those who'd gathered to hear the Buddha's enlightening Kesho, the many monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, arhats, bodhisattvas, gods, said to have numbered in the thousands, were dumbfounded, thrown for a loss when the Buddha held up a flower. Remember that, right? The Buddha holds up a flower. Mahakashapa smiled, and the Buddha announced that he had transmitted the Dharma to him. Here, in case 32 of the Buddha and non-Buddhist, Ananda alone, just Ananda, is thrown for a loss. There's no big crowd. Maybe no one else stood close enough to hear the exchange, or maybe everyone else understood what was going on, or maybe everyone else assumed the Buddha a wonder worker had miraculously done it again, mysteriously enlightening yet another person. Maybe next time he'll enlighten me, such people might have thought. But only Ananda was troubled enough and clear and honest and courageous enough to ask a personal heartfelt question. What actually happened? What did the non-Buddhist realize? What indeed is realization? Is it a thing? Is it nothing? Ananda, the Buddha's own cousin and attendant, was known as a man of high intelligence, of sweet and noble character. It is through him that women were finally admitted into the Buddhist order and also photographic memory. It is through him that all the Buddhist teachings, his teishos, the sutras, have come down to us. 
None were written. The Buddha lived in a time of oral culture. But Ananda could repeat what he'd heard word for word and later, starting with, uh, and so later, uh, these were uh, recorded, transcribed into written uh, form. And always the, the sutras begin with, thus have I heard. In other words, that is Ananda saying, I'm the one speaking this. This is what I heard the Buddha say. So every sutra begins with, thus have I heard. Uh, it is said that Ananda had only one flaw of character. And it was a deeply human flaw. He was so devoted to the Buddha as a person, holding him in such pure and high regard that he could not personally actualize the Buddha's teaching. To do so would have meant dropping, at least momentarily, all sense of self and other, and so no longer keeping the Buddha up on a special pedestal. He would have to, in short, to first become a non-Buddhist, a non-anything, really, in order to become the Buddhist he was capable of being from the start. So while at this point Ananda had practiced for many years and was personally very close to the Buddha, he had no realization. And here's this guy who waltzes in, not even a Buddhist, maybe merely an intellectual challenger, not any kind of humble devotee, yet nonetheless instantly gains Kensho, then filled with gratitude, he heads off and leaves. At that moment, Ananda, the insider, personally close to the Buddha, found himself on the outside of whatever it was that was really going on. Others had come to realization, that much Ananda knew. But now to top it all, here's this guy, this outsider who just shows up, gets it, whatever it is, and leaves. It surely hurt and puzzled Ananda. He was a human being. Perhaps he wondered about what he himself might have been lacking. Perhaps he wondered about how he was inadequate. Maybe he thought he might not have the strength or the courage or the aspiration or the purity or the intelligence to see it through, to truly awaken. What do I lack? He thought, what could it be? What is enlightenment? And what do you get upon realizing it? That guy seems so grateful. We've all been there. Maybe we return to it in one form or another, or another, again and again. An initial, why don't I get it early on in practice, might later become, why can't I adequately respond to and demonstrate this koan? It's not a one-time thing. Take heart, even the Buddha, a supremely competent person, suffered from self-doubt. As he sat beneath the Bodhi tree Mara, the Buddha's tempter, the embodiment of his and our own ancient habit of self-centeredness approached and challenged him, asking, are you sure you are worthy of realizing full enlightenment? To answer, the Buddha touched the earth and let the earth answer for him. 
Ananda, like the Buddha, like all of us, must face this same fundamental issue. The non-Buddhist gratitude and the Buddhist response about those horses must have bothered Ananda deeply. In time, it all became one gnawing doubt, which is not a bad thing. Such doubt can chew away at what is established and unexamined, dig into the hard ground of our certainties. Of course, our most fundamental certainty is that I'm in here and everyone and everything else is out there. But doubt digs away at that. In time, allowing something new to flower. Ananda's enlightenment occurred after the Buddha had passed into Parinirvana and when Mahakashapa was then leading the community. And we'll explore the Parinirvana and have a ceremony for it next Saturday. Its traditional date, that'll be the 17th, its traditional date is February 16th. And everyone on the pilgrimage in India will actually be where it happened at that time, in Kushinagara, on that very day, holding a ceremony for the Buddhist Parinirvana, which is what we'll be doing here. But imagine being there to do it. Anyway, here's the story of Ananda's enlightenment. It's Koan 22 of the Gateless Barrier. Mahakashapa's flagpole. Ananda asked Mahakashapa, the world-honored one transmitted the golden robe to you. What else did he transmit to you? Mahakashapa said, Ananda. Ananda said, yes. Mahakashapa said, pull down the flagpole at the gate. Pull down the flagpole at the gate. In the old days, in China, or in India, I guess this would have been, sorry, uh, it said that a flag was put up when a Dharma talk was going to be given. Pull down the flagpole at the gate. Tesho is over. It is a rather understated offering presenting Zen's uniquely direct way of employing both action and words, a way that emerges from understanding. That's why it can be so brief. There's tremendous understanding there. Clearly, uh, the question of what the non-Buddhist realized was still in Ananda's mind years later, still troubling him. So he brought it up with Mahakashapa. The world-honored one transmitted the golden robe to you. What else did he transmit to you? And this triggered uh, his own realization. There is a universal core to such doubt which reveals a gift. Divine discontent is not unhappiness. It does not make us unable to appreciate and enjoy the good in our lives. Once while I was eating lunch with Aiken Roshi at an Italian restaurant in Honolulu, where I'd taken him as a kind of thank you, I asked him, why do we do Zen? He answered, happiness. Then he caught himself in a too obvious cliche and stopped and thought and said, no, 
Many people in this world are happy. They're absorbed in work, in family, in hobbies, and so on. And so they're happy. In these activities for them, self-centeredness is gone. So they're happy. But if impermanence has bit more deeply, and you can no longer simply be at ease even in such ways, then Zen can show you the way to happiness. Doubt is a way of integrity. It is not skepticism, but honesty and openness. No evading. The universal aspect of such doubt is touched by the great Israeli poet Yehuda Amachai in a brief poem, The Place Where We Are Right. Amachai, his dates are 1924 to 2000, was born in Germany, then migrated with his family to Palestine in 1936, so he was 12. He later fought in the Israeli War of Independence as a young man, but then, after that, became an advocate for peace and reconciliation and worked for this with Palestinian writers. So his brief poem goes, from the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard, but doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. The place we're right, where we're right is hard and trampled like a yard, but doubts and loves dig it up. Ananda never gave up. He kept doubting. He stayed by the Buddha's side, heard his talk, tended to him in his aging, kept asking questions, and kept practicing. It must have been painful for him to see others being confirmed in realization and moving ahead. Aitken Roshi humbly revealed his own experience of this, writing in his commentary to the case of the non-Buddhists that it took him 12 years of desultory practice and another 12 of committed practice before the way opened for him. Like Ananda, he saw others pass him by and it hurt. Perhaps for Ananda, this only became fully conscious when the non-Buddhists showed up like Sumita in the old tale of the Buddha meeting with the Buddha Dipankara, had a profound experience and then moved on, leaving Ananda hurt and puzzled. Yet as happy as his experience of realization was for the non-Buddhist, I wonder, did he really get it? Did he like the Buddha as the sage Sumita long ago, who after meeting the Buddha Dipankara, dedicated himself to a path of ongoing practice? Or did the non-Buddhist simply walk off from his profound experience thinking, I've got it, letting it fade in time into a wonderful memory, but not become the foundation of an actualized and a transformed life. 
So what I'm saying is, did he miss the point? The real point? Many who passed Robert Aiken Roshi, uh, later to be Roshi, Robert Aiken to start with, of course, early on, later faded and disappeared from a life of practice. In his teaching, Aiken Roshi sometimes warned about what he called plateauing too soon, settling down, going through the motions, thinking it's under your belt and all's, you got it. For Aiken Roshi, perhaps his long, emotionally painful apprenticeship laid the foundation for his continuing on after his initial experience to ultimately become a wonderful and greatly human teacher. As he says in his commentary to the case, slow and steady won the race for the turtle, as the hare found out to his dismay. Ananda, like Aiken Roshi and others, kept going, kept at it, kept questioning, kept sitting, kept showing up as sort of new three pillars of Zen I uh, these days offer showing up, waking up, and growing up. That's the three pillars of Zen. Showing up, waking up, and growing up. Ananda didn't give up, but kept working at it. Kept being bothered by what he, by what he didn't yet understand. And because of this, in time, he blossomed. The word Buddha has the same English root as the word to bud. In the end, Ananda not only awoke, but awoke so deeply that he succeeded his teacher, Mahakashapa, to become a fully Dharma-transmitted, enlightened ancestor through whom the Buddha's realization has come down to each one of us today. If you look at our ancestral line, you'll see he's prominently there. The non-Buddhist, whoever he was, however, is not. But let me ask this. Is anyone a Buddhist when they realize? Who is there to be anything at that eternal moment? Buddhist? Non-Buddhist? You've got to be kidding. Who is there just then to be anything at all. Vast emptiness, nothing to be called holy, said Bodhidharma. That's what it is. Vast emptiness. At realization of emptiness, we're all non-Buddhists. Who is there to be called a Buddhist? But then coming back down from the hundred-foot pole of no self, no other, no me, no you, no mountains, rivers, earth. From this complete, unlimited, unbounded, joyous, astonishing, wholeness, completeness, insight, we return into the world of me, you, self, other, mountains, again mountains, rivers, again rivers, and taking vows to actualize realization in life, we begin practicing anew confirmed in a wise and compassionate commitment to embodying a life of sustained exertion, of practice realization, of great vows for all, 
of the verse of the Kesa, of Jukai vows. Like Sumida, after meeting the Buddha Dipankara, we realize we've been Buddhists from the start. Indeed, from the very beginning, all beings, not simply Buddhists, but Buddhas. Buddhists are simply Buddhas consciously practicing being themselves. Buddhists are Buddhas who, without clinging to the delusion of self-centered consciousness, are nothing at all. And so are no Buddhas endlessly practicing. Dogen's summation of the Genjo Koan manifesting such a section of the Shoba Genzo, Eye of the Treasury of the True Dharma, goes like this. And we did this a couple of weeks ago when we went through the Genjo Koan. Mayu, Zen Master Bao, was fanning himself. A monk approached and said, Master, the nature of the wind is permanent and there's no place it does not reach. Why, then, do you fan yourself? Although you understand that the nature of wind is permanent, Mayu replied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of its reaching everywhere? asked the monk. Mayu just kept fanning himself. The monk bowed deeply. Dogen then says, the actualization of the Buddha Dharma, the vital path of its authentic transmission is like this. If you say that you do not need to fan yourself because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning, you understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind. The nature of wind is permanent. Because of that, the wind of the Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and ripens the cream of the long river. Because our nature is Buddha, we can work at practicing the way of the Buddha. Wu Men in his verse to the koan of the non-Buddhist questioning the Buddha says, walking along the edge of a sword, running over jagged ice. You need take no steps. Climb no ladder. Just jump from the cliff with hands open. In the midst of our ordinary difficulties, walking along the edge of a sword, running over jagged ice, realization should be as easy, woman says, as falling off a log. Letting go we can allow gravity to do its job. To return to Leonard Cohn, he writes in the song, A Thousand Kisses Deep, you lose your grip and then you slip into the masterpiece. You lose your grip and then you slip into the masterpiece. It's been there from the very beginning. As Hakuin says in the Zazen Wasan, from the very beginning, all beings are Buddhists. How then do we manage to keep missing it? Why must we work and work to get it? Maybe the problem is that we think that there is something to get and someone to get it. Let go of that cliff. 
what then might even a non-Buddhist realize? Or to put it another way, but please don't misunderstand and literalize this, what is it that only a non-Buddhist can realize? We'll stop here and recite our great vows for all.